House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Tom O'Neill, uh, the author of Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Thank you for talking with us today, Tom. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Tom, that's quite the title. Um, you've associated a lot of things with Charles Manson. Um, how did you make that connection? The connection of Manson to... The CIA. Oh, well, it's kind of complicated, but uh, and it took quite some time. But basically, I have a circumstantial case that Manson... Um, Inter intersected with the CIA researchers in 1967 at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic who were doing work to, secret work, secret drug research to uh, try to obtain uh, hypnoprogrammed assassins, couriers, uh, and they were using unwitting subjects. All of that stuff came out in congressional hearings in the mid-1970s. It was all reported on, but uh, one of the researchers did not I, being a part of this program, his name was Louis Jolly and West. They called him Jolly West, and he was actually at the clinic at the same time Manson was there for three months. And West, for 20 years, had been trying to create exactly what Manson somehow developed the technology to do, which was to create hypno, hypno programmed assassins, people who, as they were described by experts and other witnesses at trial, who seemed like brainwashed zombies who did Manson's bidding, including killing complete strangers just because they were told to by Manson. So, so now you think that, uh, do you think he just used the same technique uh, that he had sort of picked up off of, uh, you know, agents, or um, was it just, uh, was it something that uh, he was, got helped with by someone? Well, what you'll hear me saying a lot in this conversation is I don't like to say what I think might have happened. I only like to say what I know happened. And what I know happened was there was this doctor who was trying to learn how to do this, and he had contact with Manson at this clinic when Manson was set there by his parole officer, who was also simultaneously doing research on drugs and violence. And um, during that period, Manson, again, somehow learned how to do this. So um, I, I want the readers to reach their own conclusions as to whether or not they think it. That's why I began by saying I, I'm presenting a circumstantial case because I have no direct evidence that uh, this doctor programmed Manson, programmed the women, taught Manson, any of that. I'm just saying that that was the objective of his research. It had never been reported before. And uh, he was working out of the clinic uh, at the very same time that Manson was going there every day for two months. And, and during that period, Manson evolved from basically a barely literate ex-con into the guru, uh, kind of hippie cult leader that we all recall today. I mean, he's passed away a couple of years now, but um, I'm presenting a case that I'd like to, I think it's, there's pretty solid evidence that something untoward happened. Leosi at the book in the book in his epilogue, uh, the prosecutor who wrote Helter Skelter in the epilogue says the biggest mystery to him of all was how Manson gained the knowledge to create program killers who would not only kill 
on command, but without any remorse and with gusto and glee and, and brutality. Uh, he says in his book, and I quote it in mine, is it something he picked up in prison? Is it something he picked up out in the street? Is it something he learned from others? And that was kind of the launching off point for a massive amount of the book, uh, my book, I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, trying to answer that question. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. Um, how was this to um, to work on? Because you're dealing with a lot of, um, you know, Hollywood uh, in Hollywood, and uh, you know, who, and also Bugliosi. So, how was this to uh, do research on? Were people very open to letting you know what? No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. That's why it took 20 years because in the very beginning. Uh, when it was just a magazine assignment, I was kind of trying to find an angle. They wanted me to do a story commemorating what was then going to be the 30th anniversary of these crimes, which was 1999. And my assigning editor said, just, you know, uh, write about the impact of the crimes on Hollywood and the culture and, uh, and the relationship between stars and fans and stars and their community in, in, in Hollywood. Uh, and I was not interested in that, and uh, I dug pretty deep and started finding out um, contradictions uh, in what was presented at trial and then later in the prosecutor's book about the official narrative of the case. And I started exploring those contradictions and trying to find out what, what, what really had happened. And yeah. I heard a lot of this in interviews that I did with principal people in the case, you know, witnesses who had, who had testified but had never spoken publicly before, uh, people who had been in the Manson family, people who had associated with them, friends of the victims, relatives of the victims. Um, and it was hard to get anybody to talk in the beginning, and it just took a lot of perseverance. And then once I started hearing stuff that supported the information I was accumulating, then I thought I really need to find corroborating documents, you know, reports that had been done at the same time, you know, the investigation was going on. And that took a really long time but to first get into the district attorney's files at, at Los Angeles and then the sheriff's and um, LAPD files, which I got into all three. And um, it was quite an accomplishment because nobody else had ever seen those before. Some researchers had seen, had seen a, a little bit of the CA's uh, files, but not the complete file. And <clears throat> nobody had seen the sheriff's files. I mean, I think some of the sheriffs shared reports with Ed Sanders, who wrote The Family. But I got into the archive, which was basically a, a barracks over at the training facility for the sheriffs, where they had those file, rows and rows of filing cabinets, and I was left alone uh, with the Manson filing cabinet for, well, the whole summer, basically. And What, um, what about Charles sorry. Manson himself? Did you get a uh, chance to speak him? with it? Did you get a chance to speak with him? And if so, what did you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah, well, I interviewed him in 2000. And unfortunately, he wasn't allowed to have visitors at the time. You know, the, the majority of the time he was in prison for all the years, at least since, since the Tate LaBianca convictions, you know, that was the first murders he was convicted of. Um, he, he, he was constantly in and out of solitary, what they call the hole, because he famously always challenged authority, wanted to disrupt the system, misbehaved, um, and I don't think really wanted to be among the general population. So when he was in solitary confinement, he couldn't have visitors. 
You still had phone. He had limited phone call privileges. I think one night a week, maybe or two nights a week, he was allowed to use the phone at nighttime. So my interviews were all done over the phone, which was really frustrating with someone like him because if you've seen any of the videotaped interviews, it's hard enough to get a straight answer out of him. He plays his games, answers in riddles and nonsense and non sequiturs, and he also, you know, every time I would try to really challenge him and press him on the phone, he had a guy inside prison with him who was sitting there on the phone with him on the public phone, um, and if Manson would get upset, he'd hand the phone to this guy, Pincushion, who was kind of like his bodyguard uh, in prison and his, I guess, aide de camp. And then Pincushion would yell at me and try to negotiate, you know, a different line of questioning. So it was just a really frustrating experience. I, I never got to sit down with him face-to-face. Not that I would have gotten any more, but I think I would have had a better chance. Wow. That's that's pretty fascinating. So, um, Manson himself, you uh, have alluded to in a few articles that I've read that uh, you think he's he wasn't really mentally ill; that it was all an act. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty convinced of that because his people. When I say people, you know, he had a whole network of people inside prison and outside prison who kind of supported him. You know, handled his interview requests, mail donations, quote-unquote. Um, and the main guy on the outside of the prison for most of that time was a guy called uh, Gray Wolf. And um, when we were setting up the interviews and I was telling Gray Wolf what I wanted to talk to Manson about and basically also telling them that I wouldn't give Manson any money, they wanted money, and I said, I can't do that. Um, at one point, he played me a tape recording of him describing my motivation as I described it to him, to Wolf. He, he, he described it to Manson, and Manson started asking him questions about um, what I knew or what I might ask, and he sounded completely coherent and not like the Charlie Manson, the public Charlie Manson. We all know this was, I think, the real Charlie Manson. So I'm sure there was some mental illness involved there, but not to the degree that uh, everyone believes. Um, I think he was playing he was playing a game, playing a character. I've always thought that as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, did you believe in the Helter Skelter, um, the the Beatles song and, and album was really used the way he was? Like, what's what's your thought on why he did what he did? Well, in, in the prosecution theory for the murders, Manson wanted to ignite a race war that he thought was coming, but taking too long to happen. Uh, and he called it Helter Skelter, where he thought that ultimately the blacks were going to rise up against the whites and there'd be this kind of apocalyptic race, apocalyptic, I can never say the word, uh, an apocalyptic race war that would end with all the whites on the planet Earth being wiped out. Uh, and Manson had promised his followers that he would find or hide them in this bottomless pit in the desert where they would subsist on rivers of honey and and uh, juice and trees with candy, you know, just all this crazy stuff. And uh, at, at once the blacks had wiped out the whites, Manson said they would emerge from their hiding place and subjugate the blacks and then start repopulating the planet with their perfect white offspring. So I, I don't believe Manson believed that for a second, but I believe that many of the followers did, especially particularly the younger women. And... Um, Bugliosi, I found out long after I'd interviewed him, 
so I couldn't ask him about this myself, had said it twice in interviews that he never believed that Manson believed in it, but that he was convinced that Manson's followers believed in it. And, you know, what I wanted to ask Puliosi, but it was too late because he had already told me he'd never talk to me again and I had to, you know, he's going to sue me. Um, I wanted to ask him, well, if Manson didn't send those kill those people up there to start a race war, you know, to try to frame the, pan the Black Panthers for the murders of Sharon Tate and the people that she, she died with at her house and the next night the La Biancas, well, then why did he target them for murder? Why were they murdered if it wasn't for a race war? But Leos has gone to his grave, so we're not going to know the answer to that, at least not from him. Yeah, and now you had a difficult relationship with Bugliosi. What, what, what caused that? Oh, you know, basically I'd interviewed him, and uh, very early when it was still a magazine story, it was in the first month of my reporting, and he was very generous with his time. We talked all day, and then subsequent to that, when I was doing my really heavy reporting and investigating, getting trial transcripts, getting my uh, police reports and uh, sheriff's reports and DA's reports, I saw that there was a lot of information in there that, again, contradicted what he had maintained happened. And uh, once he found out what I was doing, he tried to impede my investigation, and then ultimately we had this very climactic face-to-face -face showdown at his house six years after our first meeting, during which... Um, he shouted and yelled and cursed at me and threatened me and said that he was never, my book was never going to be published because he would do everything he could do to stop it and he was the best trial lawyer in the world. And um, Unfortunately, he passed away before my book came out and I really wanted him to be alive and accountable for all the stuff that, that is in my book, but that's not the case. Wow. Um, what, is the, what is the true nature of what um, Sharon Tate and the family and the house. There's there's so many rumors about what was going on um, in that house. Um, what can you tell us about what really happened, what they were really doing in that house? Well, I wouldn't say that Sharon was doing anything at all that should have actually should have resulted in her, her death and any other people's deaths. But there was a lot of stuff going on in the house in the six weeks or two months before the murders that hadn't been reported by Bugliosi. Some of it is in Ed Bender's book and a couple other books. But there was a lot of drug drug usage and and, and drug dealing um, and trafficking out of the house and a lot of uh, violence going on in the house. Sharon was gone. Sharon and Roman left left the house in March of '69. Uh, Roman went to London to work on a script and scout locations for the Day of the Dolphin, which he was supposed to be directing. And uh, uh, Sharon went to Rome to make a movie. So um, Sharon came back, I think, the day before the moon landing. So that would have been about July 19th. So a lot of that stuff happened before she got there. Um, but it was known by then in Hollywood as a place where, you know, this stuff was going on. Um, when she got back, uh, her friends told me, Joanna Pettit and others, that she was appalled and horrified by what she found had been going on in the house. And Abigail Folger, the coffee and Wojciech Bukowski, uh, one of Roman's friends who had been house-sitting, stayed with her when she came back, even though they were supposed to leave and go back into their house on, on, on Woodstock and the Hollywood Hills. 
and she didn't want them to stay. And she, according to Joanna Pettit, who a phone conversation, she was besieging Roman to make them leave, and she was crying on the phone. And he wanted them there for whatever reason. Um, so I don't know what she saw or what occurred while she was there in the last three weeks of her life, but uh, I have a pretty good idea. It was pretty, you know, the same stuff that was going on before she got there. Now, you were kind of um, a little bit hard on the law enforcement um, over Manson. Um, what is it that you want to say about law enforcement? Were they, were they just in conflict? Well, actually, I wasn't as hard as Gugliosi no. was on them. I mean, he basically... He, <laughs> Yeah, he basically calls them fools and incompetent in his book and says that he was the one who really solved and uh, every you know they they brought information to him and then he said he put all the puzzle pieces together and he went out and initiated getting evidence to back up his theory and they didn't do anything well the reason they didn't do it was they never believed his shelter theory and they also knew that he was making a lot of stuff up and they didn't want to work that closely with him and jeopardize their careers um but they also i believe when i say they it's pretty general but the very highest ups at the lapd and the sheriffs i i believe and again i can't say this definitively but i, I present a pretty solid circumstantial case in the book with documents and reports that they knew what was going to happen before it happened and who did it when it happened but Instead of immediately taking the family into custody or even questioning them, they backed off. And I'll leave it to the your listeners to read the book and see why that happened and how, and how it actually happened yeah. in, the, in the two or three months between the time of the murders and the time of the arrest of the Manson family. Now, um, what do you think the biggest surprise would be um, about the murders uh, that the readers are going to get out of your book from the responses i get to people who've read the book who actually know a lot about the case you know prior to opening my book just you know there's a lot of people out there who yeah. obsession is a strong word let's just say are really interested in the case researchers journalists all kinds of people Quentin Tarantino. i think what everyone seems to walk away from my book with which is probably the easiest thing to kind of be shocked by was the fact that Terry Melcher, who was a pivotal person in explaining why the the house that Sharon lived in was selected by Manson uh, for a slaughter. Uh, he, you know, the official narrative is that Terry, who was a rock and roll producer and the son of Doris Day, had rejected Manson. That he had led Manson on to believe that he was going to record him, and then he didn't. And the official version has Melcher auditioning Manson kind of informally at the Spawn Ranch in May, late May of 69, and then politely telling Manson that he just didn't think that um, he could produce them, and suggesting instead that a friend of his come out and do some recording and possibly uh, filming for a documentary, but that Melcher would have nothing to do with what I found out in, in the files and interviews from several different sources was that Melcher actually had a relationship that extended beyond that May audition where, you know, at trial, Melcher, Melcher said in sworn testimony on the stand at the Tate-LaBianca trial, the Tex Watson trial, at the Leslie Van Houten retrials, many, many times that he never saw Manson again after May of 69. 
which was, you know, a couple months before the murders. But what I found uh, were documents in, in Vince Bugliosi's own handwriting showing that Melcher had been meeting with Manson for several months after the murders in very dramatic situations at the Spawn Ranch and also at a, the Barker Ranch and Myers Ranch in Death Valley. And Bugliosi hid all that from the defense and uh, changed the narrative and the boy in the perjury of Terry Melcher on the stand, which would have the verdicts overturned if... Um, I mean, it still could, as Stephen Kay said, the co-prosecutor, and you'll see that passage in the book, too, when he looks at my, uh, the documents I've assembled. Uh, he said this could get a new trial. But that hasn't happened. The book's been out a couple months now, and nobody's made any move to do anything like that, so we'll see if anything happens. Yeah. Uh, and what do you think about some of the girls um, being on, getting out on parole? That'll probably never happen, eh? Well, I, you know, um, if anybody's going to get out, it'll be Leslie Van Houten. She didn't participate in the murders the first night, the Tate murders. She was at the La Bianca house and was convicted in those murders. And it's hard if you believe in parole or parole and if you believe in rehabilitation to make an argument for why she's still sitting behind bars. The parole... Um, committees have granted her parole, I can't remember, three or four times now, and each time it reaches the governor's death, the governor's the only one with the power to um, deny the parole committee's uh, judgment, and that's happened now uh, for about five or six years. And, you know, I, I like to stay objective and not say what I think, whether she should get out or not, but I do think that if you're going to have a parole system, that it should be applied equally to every prisoner. And she's a model prisoner, and she's the longest-serving female inmate in California with Patricia Krenwinkel, her co-defendant, possibly in the nation, I'm not sure. And um, I do think, well, I was, I was frankly really surprised that Gavin Newsom uh, overturned the parole committee's ruling, because Gavin Newsom is about as liberal as they get, but he's also very ambitious and pretty much everyone thinks he wants to become president someday and that might be what he's looking to thinking even though i personally would like to release this person i don't know how that i mean that could be used against me in a campaign for president that uh, you were the first person to release it well actually not the first because steve grogan another killer got out in the 80s but they didn't have the governor's uh rule then so if a parole committee um, voted to release someone that didn't go to the governor's desk in California. That was a new law that began, I think, in the late 80s. So Gavin Newsom would be the first governor that, uh, if he, if he releases any of the three that have been, uh, or the two that have been granted parole so far, Bruce Davis and Leslie Van Houten, he'd be the one that released them, and that could be a stain on his record if he's trying to run for president. Do you think in, uh, Bugliosi's, um, prosecution do you think that's he, he why did he redirect everything was that just to win the case like it, it was all about winning and not necessarily um you know about finding out the truth wow i, I present a couple competing theories in the book the one one of them and the easiest to to believe um is that he had a book he had a book deal prior to the commencement of the trial and he had a co-author, Kurt Gentry, sitting in the front row of the trial every day, uh, taking notes, working on the book with him. 
So, I mean, that would not be allowed today. I can't believe it was allowed then. Um, the California Bar actually has a, in their charter that you cannot be working on any commercial project associated with, with the case that's in process. You might not even be able to do it for a number of years until that case is educated. Um, but, you know, it, it you know, that's documented and proven. Kurt Gentry and Bulio Seaman admitted to me that they were working on the book during the trial. You know, that's a conflict of interest. You know, Bugliosi had an interest in having as sensational a case as possible uh, because that would sell more books. Um, so that's one theory for why he might have lied and presented a false narrative. Another, and, and this is the chapters later in the book, when you see what I found out about Manson's parole office, uh, officers and his catch and release and what was going on in the, with these government programs at the same time and in the same year, um, it's possible that Bugliosi was answering to a higher authority who was saying, this is how we need to prosecute this case. So that, that and again, that's the stuff I'm a little reluctant. I guess I told you guys at the outset that I, I'd talk about anything. But I just don't want to say anything happened a certain way unless I can prove it. But mm -hmm. I present cases, I present evidence of all these possibilities in the book. And I think that's why a lot of readers are responding to it, because it, it, it puts, you know, the final decision in their hands. It's just like mine. I mean, I look at everything, and then I, I have my own ideas of what happened, and I want the readers to have that same ability without me but biasing them too much. I mean, any time you're writing a book, there's going to be an, an inherent bias you can't avoid, but I possible, and I want the readers to reach their own conclusions just based on that the documented evidence I have. Were, were you able to talk to any of the family, you know, like uh, Diane uh, uh, Late? Oh yeah, yeah. I stuff? talked to probably about probably about eight or nine of them. A lot of them wouldn't talk to me and, and very adamantly refused my. Um, interview requests or my I showed up at the door of several of them and one or two of them called their their attorneys a lot of them were living off the grid under different names but um, yeah I talked to Diane I talked to uh, Barbara Hoyt Bruce Davis Bobby Beausoleil um, Sherry Cooper uh, I have a list in the back of the book in the acknowledgments and I don't have the book in front of me but yeah I, I did talk to a number of them of course, the ones I wanted to talk to the most, um, who I think have the answers, were the ones that didn't talk to me. Tex Watson, Linda Kasabian, Nancy Pittman, Danny DiCarlo. I mean, those are the guys who I think are the secret keepers, who really know the, what, the whys and the what-fors of this case that uh, would, it, would answer the questions I raised in the book. Yeah. I'm just wondering if, if they sort of... Um... Uh, heard about the race, uh, race war, and things like that. Helter skelter. If they sort of. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, ones I spoke to, uh, like Diane Lake, for instance. Yeah, she said she heard about it at least from the winter of '69 on, maybe earlier. And I do believe, like I said, that Manson was preaching that to them. But I don't believe that Manson had the murders committed for the race war, because I don't think he ever believed it. And Bugliosi, who called himself the authority on the case, told Rolling Stone in 2015 before he died and Penthouse Magazine in 1975, I think, uh, that he never thought Manson believed in the race for motive for a second. Wow. Wow. It's quite a shock. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just know. Have you seen any good portrayals of Manson and the family on on any production yet? Um, you know, I saw the Helter Skelter movie when I was a kid. I tried to find it, you know, the early years that I was doing this, and I couldn't. I imagine now you can get everything on the internet. Maybe I should watch it again. Uh, you know, Julio, he remade the movie with himself as executive producer for television in the early 2000s, and that it was no good at all. Um, besides Helter Skelter, I mean, I thought the scenes of Spawn Ranch and Tarantino's movie were pretty compelling, but everything else with the family after that was fictionalized and pretty silly. Um, I, I just saw Mindhunter, the episode with Manson, right. and, and, you know, they had the interview of Manson and, and Watson, and I could pick both of those apart and say why this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen, but they were pretty compelling. I mean, they, they know what they're doing at that show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one thing that kind of made me cringe was when Tex Watson was interviewed, and they kept saying Tex, you know, Tex, what about, I mean, Watson would never let himself be called Tex after his conviction. He's Charles. Right. And he would have walked out on that interview if they called him Tex once. Hmm. So you think they're not the best portrayals of what really happened with those? Uh, well, I mean, you know, Mindhunter, like Tarantino's movie, is pretty fictionalized, um, those interviews. Um, I was pretty surprised that in the Mindhunter episode that dealt with the Manson. I, I don't know if it's in 6 too, because I haven't gotten to the 6th, I've just seen the 5th. Um, but I was pretty surprised that this team of FBI behavior is saying in this hour-long episode that they, they don't believe Bruyos' motive, and, and they basically had more doubt even than I did, I think, in my book. Uh, that was kind of surprising to me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's but, but gratifying because uh, I don't know where they got their information, but I think they were on the right track. Yeah. More hindsight, too. I mean, I'm sure at the time yeah. they wouldn't have thought that. It was just, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's how it goes, you know. And I did think the actor that played Madison and Mindhunter was pretty good. And I guess it's the same one that was in Tarantino film, but, you know, they only caught a glimpse of him there. But he was pretty. He did it pretty close to what I would have expected Manson to be like had I ever sat across from him in a cell, which, like I said, I couldn't. I just talked to him on the phone. You know, I have a website with a lot of my documents up there that I want people to see because uh, the most important part of my whole book are my two pages of endnotes, which cite the documents, and I scan them, and I'm still, still in process of being added to it. But the website also has audio tapes of some of the interviews, including my audio tapes, my Manson interview, my Bugliosi interview, Stephen Kay, that people can go listen to if they, uh, it's one's on Instagram and one's on, um, Facebook. And uh, if they just Google my name, or my name and Manson's name and Instagram or Facebook, it'll take, it'll direct them to them. Oh, okay. So your website, is it just, uh, your name or is it something more? No, you know, I forget it. I'm not in my computer. I think Instagram is, <laughs> I think Instagram is either Chaos the Book or Charles Manson Chaos, something like that. But, you know, I know that whenever I forget it and I'm at somebody else's computer, I say just Google my name and Manson and, and, and the word Instagram and you'll find it. Facebook, I'm almost 100% sure it's just the title of the book. Uh, so you, you put that in the search bar of Facebook, you know, Chaos, Charles Manson, Secret History, blah, 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 blah. You'll get to the Facebook page. 
Yeah. Yep. Okay. We, we'll actually link it on our website as well so people can just oh, super, super. click and all yeah. that stuff. Well, yeah, and your website uh, is tom oneillorg O'Neill with two Yeah, L's. yeah, that's my yeah. personal website. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that was something I created before I did the book a couple of years ago, and that has a lot of my old stuff that I wrote prior to getting sucked into this vortex of uh, insanity. But, it's um, so pretty interesting up, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, so by putting up compilations of, like, the reviews for the book and interviews I've done for the book on, on that website, too, I'm not putting up too much of that on my the Facebook and Instagram thing. I'm trying just mostly to have documents concerning the case. I might have a couple interviews or reviews up there too, but the majority of it is stuff that's you know original reporting of mine. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Less self-promotional. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I'd say we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, we really appreciate you being here, and we're gonna. Get, oh sure. Get your website and book linked up on ours, and so people can do one thing. Oh, fantastic! Pick it up. It's called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the '60s. Tom O'Neill. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and I look forward. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? If you're lying to me, I'll get back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.